Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we have a roundtable discussion on the highlights of the past year. Good afternoon and welcome to Network Reorient. Today I have with us, uh, with me, three regular contributors to some of our podcasts that you may have heard before. First, I have Claudia Radovan, Haroon Bashir, and Salman Said. Good afternoon, everybody. Hi. Afternoon. Right, so I'd like to start off by asking you all, um, what are your or what have been your highlights over the past year? And I'd like to start with Claudia. What have your highlights been over the past year? Probably attending the Palestine Expo in July, I think it was the 6th and 7th, um, and having the opportunity to speak on a specific issue that's important to so many people, but not just um, academics sort of speaking at the event, politicians, comedians, activists artists from Palestine and sort of I think it's quite important to make um, academic information accessible to more people or at least um, presenting it in, in, a, in a sort of way that brings academic knowledge into a realm where others can engage with it um, and this event was really really good for that and it was interesting to hear other people talk about a subject that uh, we as academics engage with in a particular way, whereas when you're listening to comedians and activists talk about it, you hear a very different perspective. Um, and it was brilliant for that. It was a really, really enjoyable event. It was done really well. Yeah, I think I enjoyed it as well because it also was like a family event. You have a lot of um, children, um, you know, pensioners, people from all ages that went there. So it was more of a, it was less of a, like Claudia was saying, less of a kind of academic event, more of a cultural event. And I think it really pulled mm. it off well. And one of the things that I especially liked that it, it was also the idea of, you know, they were able to talk about Palestine, but as a kind of floating signifier for struggles for, for the Rohingya, mm. uh, for, for the um, Uyghurs, um, mm. also for, you know, um, uh, issues around what's happening in Kashmir. So there were a number of issues that you could see having this kind of um, common um, vocabulary. I mean, there's this... You know, David Theo Goldberg talks about um, global Palestinianization, mm -hmm. and in a way, you had an illustration of some of the kind of consequences of that for different mm -hmm. groups. So I thought, it was, and I would agree, I thought it was a really, really fantastically organised event. But also, the challenge of doing these kinds of events nowadays, mm -hmm. there was a huge, as you, you know, attempt to try and cancel the event, and um, I think that that's really, really interesting to see how um, freedom of speech, academics' freedom of speech around particular issues are really, really being um, shut down or at mm. least being, having to contest them in a way yeah. that we would have thought would have been unthinkable. And that actually segues quite nicely into, and I'm going to intersperse these between the three of your highlights. One of my highlights, I can't really call it a highlight, more like a downlight, which was the recent election and the fallout from that. And one thing that we're hearing which is directly linked to the PAL Expo, actually, and may affect it quite heavily next year, is the fact that Boris Johnson is planning on passing what's being touted as the anti-BDS mm. bill, in which um, they've done it in such a way that it's 
if you're unfairly targeting a company for sanctions or something to this effect, then therefore you are breaking the law now. This is how they've done it. So I'd want to get all three of your thoughts actually on this new development. Because let's, of... not, let's not be um, too surprised by this. I mean, the British government have a great track record of supporting apartheid. I mean, it's only after the end of apartheid they all said they were always against it. But you have both Labour and Tory governments at their various points supporting apartheid, um, introducing various legislations, legislation to enable apartheid. So the fact that they're do, trying to do this is, A, something that um, ties in what, what's the past of um, what past governments have done. B, it's part of a general kind of global trend where you see this in the United States and you see this in other places where there is this attempt to try and restrict any kind of peaceful um, resistance or critique of what is happening for, um, to the Palestinians. And I think demanding justice for the Palestinians remains a really, really important issue because it illustrates many other issues along with it. So you can see those kinds of moves being made, and I, you know, and I would hope that people will see what, that there is a reason why the anti-apartheid resistance was a resistance, mm -hmm. and it's not just looking back on it where everyone <coughs> tells you that they were against apartheid from day one. They were not. Mm. Um, they were, you know. So I think it's important for us to recognize that the struggle against apartheid continues and it needs to be continued, and it will continue going forward because I think it has a number of implications for the way in which everyone is being governed. I'm just echoing. Uh, some of the things you've just said there. Um, it's interesting because one does feel that actually if apartheid South Africa still existed today, um, they'd probably have a very, very strong you know, social media campaign, people arguing that it needs to be looked at from both sides, mm. um, in, you know, probably in a very similar way mm. uh, to which the Palestinian um, issue is spoken about. So yeah, I, I definitely think that... Um, well, it's interesting you say that because I remember um, speaking to a PhD student many, many years ago not, um, who told me that, um, when I was undergrad, that one of the things is this, that if you wanted to get free books from anywhere, always write to the South African embassy because they would provide you with free books telling you how good everything was in South Africa. So you get tons of these oh, books. Wow. So, <laughs> cool. I mean, there was all these kind of tours and goodwills. I mean, they didn't have social media, sure. but a lot mm -hmm. of what they were doing was part of this building, um, you know, uh, manufacturing consent around apartheid and saying how the condition of people, uh, you know, uh, pe African people in South Africa was wonderful compared to all of these sorts of things. So it was a very, very similar kind of strategy being used. Uh, I think the challenge I think they've met that there was a much stronger organized left mm -hmm. resisting that perhaps than there is now. Yeah. Um, and I think also in the conditions of the Cold War, that was enablement. I think now it's difficult to see um, the same kind of structures of resistance. But yeah, I think that's something, you know, it's a really good point. That we, mm -hmm. This is one of the things that I think, you know, Reorient, um, Network Reorient should be about, is really allowing us to reflect back and escape from this prism of presentism, which makes that everything only happens now and has no particular history um, and has no past, um, and I think we need to try and become critical of the present by being able to see these things in a broader perspective. Mm, the longevity of things. Yeah. I yeah. think particularly interesting post-election is, um, and disappointingly, I, I saw this put particularly well by a meme on Facebook, 
of somebody looking for everybody that now cares about anti-Semitism now that Boris Johnson has been elected. And the truth is it's not spoken about as much anymore now that it's finally sort of established, well, Corbyn will eventually step down as leader, etc., etc. And all, all the panic over anti-Semitism has just sort of disappeared now and we just don't need to talk about it um, so ferociously. Um, and with it, sort of discussions about Islamophobia in the Tory party have also disappeared. And it's like now that the election is over, it's like, oh, well, we, we don't need to talk about those things anymore. But to be fair, irrelevant. they were never really talking about Islamophobia in the Tory party. Well, that no, that much. that much is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Islamophobia Not was, meaningfully. And, you know, we've had a very famous uh, trenchant commenter talking about how Islamophobia doesn't exist. So there's a person who could detect anti-Semitism in homopathic quantities, but is unable to see the gaping wound caused by Islamophobia. But, you know, uh, so I think it makes you slightly sceptical about the bona fides. There's a lot of commentators on this. Yeah, talking about commentators, there was an article recently, wasn't there, that Islam, don't be scared, Islamophobia doesn't exist or something. I think it was by, um, yeah. So... Yeah, I, mean, I think that, that argument's been tried out again and again, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that's, you know, just emerged, but uh, the idea that, you know, it's, it's Islamophobia is <laughs> some sort of uh, distraction from mm. st or stopping people or restricting people from be able, being able to criticise yeah, Islam. Yeah, that's the one that they say. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, one needs only to go into any university, library, or... Um, <laughs> and pick up any book to recognize, or any book written about Islam to recognize, you know, the idea that Islam can't be criticized is just an absolute myth. Um, we've had hundreds of years of Orientalism uh, that kind of demonstrates quite clearly that that isn't the case. So, mm. well, I mean, this is one of the things that um, you know when we uh, worked uh, with Uncle Kareem Akeel um, on the um, attempt to sort of have a public understanding of Islamophobia, a sort of a people's definition, if you will. One of the things we did was produce an FAQ, and one of them was to say that, that you know Islamophobia isn't. And we did a um, we did a podcast on this that Islamophobia isn't really about stopping people having some kind of critical engagement on that. The point is that it's really really absurd to think that most people, when they're talking about Islamophobia, are engaged in any kind of theological dispute yeah. or discourse mm. about the nature of the divine or whether there are how many angels there are or not angels there are. That is not the main kind of target there. Mm. It's not that issue. And, and, and as Harun points out, you can go to any library, you can go anywhere where you'll see critiques, some serious, some polemical, some stupid, mm. um, about various aspects of it. And I don't think anyone wants to say that that's not the issue here. Yeah. Um, that actually, again, segues nicely into my it's second... It's very carefully planned. Yeah, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> very carefully planned. <laughs> this you think this is just being haphazardly put in there, but there is a hand, an orchestration around this. <laughs> the hand of the market, ah, very good. Um, that actually segues quite nicely into my second highlight, and that was actually the definition of Islam, or not Islam, of Islamophobia as racism. Now, we've had this conversation before, uh, myself and... Um, Salman about the pushback against this that certain organizations, certain peoples have had, and obviously there's a whole podcast about this and we invite you to listen to that one. But here, I want to kind of get your more up-to-date thoughts. Obviously, we've moved on now a couple of months and it hasn't really boiled down. There's still this debate ongoing that actually no... Islamophobia is religious discrimination, 
And if you call, if it uh, if it was racism, then the ra the race relations act and the institutions that we have against racism would have solved it ages ago. This is one thing that I'm hearing think, very recently. I think there's two so. issues around that, and as I mentioned in the discussion, partly it is that people don't realise that what by talking about Islamophobia as racism, it's actually to alert people into saying that it's not something new or different. There is already a particular um, panoply of measures and mm. understandings that exist about racism. So simply to see it as racism is much more easier to get to the heart of what the problem is. Um, the idea that you know it's covered by uh, race relations legislation. Well, the original race relations legislation only covered two communities, uh, which are Sikh community and the Jewish community, because they define them as a um, ethnic group. Um, by law. So if you were not Jewish or Sikh, you were not necessarily going to be covered by that. Mm. Um, but it, the problem here is that people tend to think about this in terms of the law, that if we change the law, that everything else will fall into place. What I think I'm more interested in is not changing the law, but changing the, the idea of what, how there's a kind of a public etiquette around these things, how society thinks and reflects on these things. You can have the most progressive legislation in place, but if it's not interpreted properly by judges, by um, police, by prosecution services, nothing will happen. Mm. People forget that the Soviet Union had one of the most liberal constitutions. It allowed its constituent members to leave whenever they wanted to. Somehow no one actually exercised that right under Stalin. Stalin wrote this constitution. So I think we have to not be naive about mm. the law and everything that shapes the law is really, really important. And of course, the, one of the expectations, we were writing a legal definition. We were not writing a legal definition. We were writing a public understanding, a public definition that people who are not in the academic business or not in the legal profession, who are not engaged in these debates full time, would be able to grasp and use and mobilize. It's really about a um, campaign of information and, and, and engagement um, because in the end, um, you know, as I said before, the way what causes Islamophobia is idiots, and I mean that in the Greek sense, people who don't uh, take part in public affairs. Mm. So you want a understanding of Islamophobia that helps people engage in public affairs, that allows people to say this is what it is, and then you build on on those those conversations. And I think that was missed, and some people missed it because I think. They were motivated to miss it. Mm. Others perhaps um, didn't you know, get the full kind of part of the uh, strategy. And I hope in the coming year that this is something that we will be able to take on um, in, 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 a more, um, in a more sustained fashion. Because really, this is a civil society project. And now with the election, it can only be a civil society mm. project. Because I do not think that the current government um, you know, will have much interest in this. But to be fair, current governments often don't have interest in major social reforms until the reforms are already happening. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to remember that the Tory government was against, for example, um, you know, they were passing legislation not to encourage uh, homosexuality and things like that. I mean, that was their kind of language they were using, you know. Mm -hmm. it was their, um, so they've not been in the forefront of 
um, these kind of advances. Mm. The governmental process or government or legal process is a culmination rather than the beginning. And I think we're really at the beginning and we need to mobilize and engage with populations in general around it. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'd like to move on. And, oh, well, just, yeah, sorry, <coughs> just to come back on uh, to a point that someone made. I mean, uh, I definitely agree that in terms of actually mobilizing people and having these types of conversations, uh, one of the key issues, at least to my mind, is to help educate people about the history of racism. So often when you have these types of conversations, people assume that it's just ignorance and the way to fight you know, this type of ignorance is just to you know, have conversations with people and you know, if, if you speak to enough racists, maybe give, give one of them a hug, then, mm. you know... Like a racist. Then everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but in reality, as you said, you know, it's about mobilising people and, you know, the government and policymakers will only um, start to address these issues when they're forced to, to some extent. Um, and it's demonstrating to people, actually, that when it came to civil rights, for example, in the US, there were mobilizations of people, and ultimately, you know, there was a response to that. Um, so these these problems won't just go away by themselves, but actually, you know, it's about people engaging mm. with politics and uh, taking the lead. Taking the lead. Exactly. You know, Haroon, what you mentioned about the civil rights is really, really uh, very useful. It goes back to things of apartheid as well. If you look at civil rights now through the prism of Hollywood productions of almost the last thirty years, kind of thing, you kind of feel that there is some civil rights and everybody's against it except the rednecks in the South who are, yeah. who are the villains of the peace. Uh, if you actually look at things like, for example, survey data uh, around about, let's say, the mid-60s, you'll find that you know, 70, 80% of um, white Americans thought that the civil rights movement was exaggerating the condition of African Americans. African Americans really had it quite good and they weren't really um, sure what they were doing. So in a way, it's a kind of a retrospective. And like in South Africa, you can't find anyone who ever supported South Africa now. And everyone who you know you meet, they'll say, well, I was always against it. So you wonder how it persisted for 40, 50 years, because everyone was against it. So I think there is an element that of the education, which I think is really, really important. And mm. it's kind of broadening that education and broadening that to other people. It goes back to the point that, Claudia, you were making in the beginning, that we need to find mechanisms of being able to spread um, understandings which don't simply go to this kind of presentist version that um, everything has been fine and everything has been done. Not because everything has been bad, but also to, you miss out the struggle to make it good. Sure. And I think that's really important as a kind of a, especially in a time like this where people feel kind of dejected mm. and defeated, that you had to struggle to get things to be better things don't just drop out of the sky and become better. Mm. Well, I mean, just, just on that point, um, it's, everyone's talking about post-Brexit, the mm. issue of racism getting, you know, uh, progressively worse. And yeah. you know, the, we've seen it most recently, I think yesterday, there were just, there were um, monkey chants in the Tottenham versus Chelsea Yeah, game, football. Yeah, football yeah. And Gary Neville did his... Um, Piece on Sky Sports and the fact that they, did everyone see what happened? Where They're I think down. Yeah, yeah, and now they've well the presenters apologised, but Sky have released a statement kind of like uh, we don't accept racism on any of our platforms. But a lot of people have pointed out that no one's actually apologised from Sky themselves mm-hmm. to to for shutting down Gary Neville's. You know yeah. that well, yeah, racism is being point, made worse. I think the point that you tried to make is we're going to have an you know even-handed debate 
and the point is there is no both sides when it comes yeah. to racism, you know. Um, but I mean, uh, while while it's absolutely true that a lot of people are feeling dejected and. You know, you you constantly hear this phrase. It's 2019. Why is this still happening? Well, I think I think yeah. <laughs> the year uh, doesn't really mean no, anything exactly. in terms and I think, of. And I think that's the point, though. I mean, there is an argument that some people are making that it's actually probably uh, you know, not I wouldn't say a good thing, but racism's always existed, and now we're just talking about it. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of people of color who experience racism every single day. Mm. Um, and this isn't anything new. You know, a lot of people are saying, we've been, we've been telling you this, we've been telling you that the society is like this for a long time, you just haven't paid attention. Um, so there's that side to, uh, to the argument as well. I think, drawing on what you were saying, um, Salman, about um, sort of spreading more information about racism as a topic, I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the UK is that people still perceive that racism is just small numbers of people saying nasty things to people from minorities. You know, it's, it's um, just verbal statements, the odd bit of physical aggression. And I think what's really like important... odd bit of physical aggression. <laughs> <laughs> being relatively sarcastic yeah. here. Um, and I think the problem that we're facing is that it's, it's a lot more than that. And I think people are still really struggling to acknowledge that, particularly people that it doesn't affect. For them, it's, it's, it's unfathomable, you know, well, of course these things don't happen. Well, they do regularly on a daily basis. Um, and in reference to, it's not just about bringing laws in. This isn't just a matter of, well, we'll bring a law in and that'll sort it out. Very recently, the young um, Muslim girl who had her hijab pulled off on a bus and it was used to throttle her. Mm. And the person responsible for that has got off essentially with a warning. And it's like, well, we're not even doing anything about common assault now against um, a young girl from a minority. So I don't think people can rely on laws for this. It's not about just bringing in laws as if that will solve it. It's about actually um, bringing in more education about um, the kind of or everything from microaggressions to physical assaults and everything in between, um, job inequalities. Um, all these other structural issues. I think the biggest problem that we have is that people still aren't acknowledging that this is this is a real lived experience for people. Um, it's not just the odd insult thrown across, um, you know, a tube carriage. It's it's a lot bigger than that. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, just coming back to uh, echoing that point and coming back to what Hizer said. If you look at the way um, Gary Neville's intervention has been treated and reported mm. on, it's generally been praised. Like yeah. Gary Neville's very brave. And I don't know if you followed uh, the issue regarding Stormzy. Mm. Yes, yeah. I was about to mention yeah, that so with the Stormzy 100%. Absolutely demonised. And it just shows when a person of colour talks about racism and a white person talks about racism, the, the, the difference mm. in the way they treat it. It's actually it, more so insidious than that because I read something where the media has actually twisted yeah, his words, yeah, yeah, where he responded to... I can't remember what the question was and I don't want to... Th I think it was, do you think... Do you think that uh, Britain is a racist country? And, and he, he said, yes, 100%. 100% definitely. Yeah. As in, yes, it's 100 but then media have been reporting that. He, he thinks 100% of Britain is racist. Yeah. So not just that the reaction will be different, but how a person of colour actually speaks is taken and twisted. Mm -hmm. mm. So it's operating on two uh, different levels. Now... And uh, also, yeah. sorry, sorry to interject, but I mean, the responses to him... Are, are so predictable. Mm, you should be course. grateful to be here. You yeah. should be grateful to be like there. It's um. There's an excellent 
a song by Kendrick Lamar and it's called King Kunta, the idea of being, and I think Korea Butelja talks about it as well, of being the privileged diaspora who live in the West mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I think this is what's being deployed against Stormzy, that look, we've given you these riches just be, just, or like what was said to LeBron James, shut up and dribble, mm -hmm. basically, the basketball player. So I think we've had a highlight from everyone apart from you, Haroon. So I want to get one highlight from you of the year. Um. There's been a few different things, but if I had to narrow it down, I'd say uh, the Crescent Lectures in Bradford. Okay. Um, I found, um, I've just really enjoyed them uh, for a number of different reasons. We've had some excellent contributors, um, but also, but also, I uh, just just the um, opportunity to engage with the local community, mm -hmm. to have those types of academic conversations in those types of spaces, and you know, because again, when you're having a lot of academic conversations in the academy, you have mm. one type of response to that. Um, yeah. And it's quite different when you take it to the local community. Yeah. Um, so I found that just a really interesting experience and one that I uh, very much benefited from. Um, I don't know if uh, Claudia wants to come in on that. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed speaking at the event, probably more than I've ever enjoyed speaking at any sort of um, official academic conference because as, as you point out the engagement that you get back off people um, you know nearly everybody had a question or a comment um, people wanted to carry on the conversation af after after um, finished speaking and it was just brilliant to hear um, as, as you say what people in the community have to comment on issues that you know we discuss on a regular basis in an academic capacity but quite often there's this worry that it doesn't go any further. So one of my biggest worries with academia is we our output is quite slow. Journal articles take time. Some more than others. <laughs> the less said about that, the better. Oh, um, <laughs> it takes a long time to produce journal articles. It takes a long time to have output. It requires um, fact-checking and critique and all the rest, um, peer reviewing. But by contrast, the mainstream media has the ability to churn out information, good, bad, indifferent, and everything in between on a daily basis, sometimes a different story from the morning till the afternoon to the evening. And they can do that every single day. And our output is quite slow by comparison. Mm. And we have a lot of emphasis on it mm. being correct and it having impact. Events like the Crescent Lectures do have impact and they do have reach. And I think that on that basis, they're really important and they're very enjoyable as well. Mm. No, I think that's a really important point because I think one of the issues has been that, um, again, came out of the election, but there has been a transformation around the media landscape, and everyone talks about social media as being mm. the big change, and of course it is. But the other one is that if you look at the actual production of newspapers and also um, you know, public broadcasters and broadcasters generally, there is actually a, a kind of a, elimination of expertise in this. Often they're now moving towards, I mean, they've moved already towards basically trying to follow what the latest story is, so it's chasing the headlines, causing controversy, rather than having this kind of old-fashioned image of trying to, you know, um, educate, enlighten, and explain kind of thing. They don't really explain the stories as much. They're simply doing that. So, for example, with the um, anti-Semitism story that, you know, had been running for about two years, there was very rare, even on the kind of, you know, programs which are kind of supposed to be analytical programs like Newsmark mm -hmm. and things like that, they ever actually took these in either in terms of... Uh, they simply report quite often gossip that they hear from their sources, mm -hmm. gossip from other media. It becomes a kind of echo chamber. There's no kind of investigation. There's no kind of um, attempt or serious sustained attempt to say, well, actually, 
if people are housing that Jeremy Corbyn, who's been known for um, fighting um, against racism all his life, is now become traduced as a kind of a, some sort of racist and anti-Semite. Mm. How did this transformation take place? Um, there hasn't been any kind of attempt to see what is the record of um, Corbyn. It's simply that he's done this, he's done that, or something happened or this happened. The other thing, so I think that's a really, really important point, that we are actually, there is a kind of a closing of that kind of um, space around where you can have the kind of intelligent conversations about things that matter um, because mm -hmm. those programs don't exist in the same way that they're, I mean, some of that now is appearing in, you know, dare say, in podcasts and real things like know. that, but <laughs> even there, what you have there is those kind of silos. So when you're talking about at a public level, the two, you know, most people do not understand the things that they receive through Twitter, etc., simply at face value. It's the kind of repetition of that. There's no mm -hmm. kind of corrective. Most people, are, you know, are not necessarily engaged in these things all the time. And I think this is one of the things that we have to uh, recognize, that the kind of public discourse has become perhaps not just more um, brutal in some sense, or uh, maybe a feature of a kind of demagogic element to it, but also less informed, that having more information doesn't actually mean you become um, more knowledgeable because often more information just reinforces your own kind of ignorance because what we don't have is a system of critique. So in a sense what you have is this, you're flooded with information and it's difficult to tell what is good and what is bad mm -hmm. apart because you don't have the critical skills and there's no space for those critical skills to evolve to being able to separate those mm -hmm. things. I, I was just going to add that um, as, as sort of I've been speaking to groups of people and asking the question, you know, how do you engage with the daily news? Um, what's, you know, what sort of media do you engage with? And, and obviously, very rarely, the age group that I'm asking, do they ever say that they buy a copy of a newspaper or anything? Most of them engage with it through Snapchat, Twitter, mm. Facebook, etc. And um, when you sort of... I mean, I know it's no different than most people who buy a paper will always buy one paper but people think that they're engaging with this, with this breadth of information because they do it on social media and through the internet without taking into account that you know, algorithms are produced, you know, what kind of things do you want to see and we'll keep showing you those sorts of mm -hmm. things. So they only ever get so much information and that affects not only how they look at um, contemporary issues as sort of young academics, but how they engage with the world around them mm -hmm. as well because they're only mm -hmm. getting specific kinds of information. And it just, as you say, it just becomes an echo chamber. It's like, oh, yeah. you've looked at this, so we will send you more mm. of that. Mm. But I think what's more insidious is that they then become the platform for reporting news. Mm. So you basically have this kind of perfect loop mm. that, that, you know, how many times um, journalists pick up their stories or pick up expertise from Twitter. Mm. You also have, which I find kind of a proliferation of these kind of um, really kind of right-wing demog demagogues um, mm. being utilised, you know, um, all the time, um, in a way, as becoming people who are, because they're controversial, are speaking some sort of truth to power, when actually they're often just being very, very, um, they're not doing anything of the kind. Um, but there's no kind of balancing. Um, it's, you know, we could all sit around and name a handful of right-wing demagogues who appear uh, quite often in the public sphere, but it'd be difficult to talk about the, their left-wing equivalent. So that's one of the mm. things that's been um, completely eroded. Um, it just isn't the case. Um, and I think that has helped 
tilt kind of public discourse? I think um, so far there's been a couple of things which kind of intersect what everybody said so far. And I think one of those um, would be the idea of that there's a culture war happening at the moment between right and left. So, for example, um, there was a prominent YouTuber, uh, he is a leftist, I believe, who um, actually touched upon your point, Claudia, that, oh, I voted Labour, my friends voted Labour, and their friends voted Labour, so how, how did the Conservatives get a majority? And I would suggest that it is actually this idea of a social media echo chamber mm -hmm. that kind of is feeding this thing. And again, with the culture war, with the right, like so Manu pointed out that the right have this array of online, well, they call them news platforms. They're not shy about it. They say this is the news. Mm. And the left not having that um, equivalent, I would suggest that's simply because of the alt-right's acceptance and willingness to jump on board the internet as a facility no, I to... Do more that. I think the alt-right mm. and the right generally have read Gramsci better. Yeah. And I think the left has forgetting, forgotten Gramsci. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it's quite clear that, you know, they're engaged in what they call culture war. The problem is that I don't think the left is actually aware. Mm. So the war would require two sides. So there's, I don't think that... First, there's no organized left. So that's one yeah. of the problems left um, to deal with. But for, I think there is an issue that there are many... Um, what has happened in the United States for over 30 years now, where there has been a kind of a huge politicized, a political struggle around particular cultural uh, markers. Yeah. And what we see is that kind of, in, of that kind of infiltrating um, now Britain, British discourse or thing. And it's not just through the level of that they have the same kind of um, experts who run elections and things like that running through, but you see the similar kinds of moves. For example, in there's been a huge effort by the Republican Party around voter suppression through registration. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. what is the, uh, the government talks about? Well, we have to deal something with voter um, um, registration again to getting ID and things like that. Clearly, that's not, no one has ever produced evidence, either in the United States or here, that there was mass fraud going on on yeah. voter registration kind of issue, or on, on voting. And that's how they come into it. Similarly, now the Boundary Commission will make big changes, changes yeah. um, to how the boundaries are kind of. We're talking about using these kind of cultural um, means and mobilizations to put these things together. So I think it's really, really important that we recognize that this kind of conflict of, um, you know, around culture is a means of establishing kind of political power. And I think the left um, may have understood it or may have um, theorized it, but the ones who are now implementing it is really the alt-right. Mm. And they're doing this in a very effective way, I think. And you can even trace it to the actual person who's done it. It was Daniel Freeberg who came up with the idea of metapolitics from Gramsci. And he says, I took this from Gramsci, and he set up Arctos, which was the first alt-right media platform which has now been copied by Steve Bannon, Breitbart, et cetera, et cetera. So he is, sorry. Uh, sorry, just to make a, just to make a point. Um, yeah, just, just on the, the question of, uh, you know, vote, voter suppression and vote, uh, fraudulent voting, um, it, just, it just reminded me of that whole conversation uh, regarding Muslim votes. 
um, and just again, just sorry to bring it back to Islamophobia again, but it's, it just struck me how interesting that whole conversation was. Uh, when Muslims do vote, uh, it's a case of you know it's spoken about almost as as though they're trying to rig democracy uh, because they're getting involved in the political process. And when Muslims don't vote, it's because they hate our values mm. and you know <laughs> they don't want to. They get can't get it right. The Golden yeah. Walks test, isn't it? Yeah, they yeah. can't get it right. They're either too political or not political it's enough, and um, they never get it right. I mean, that's always been the case in a sense. I mean, that, I mean, not always, but I think you're right. I it's think that really touches upon that. It's the same as issues of integration. They don't integrate enough, but when they do, how dare you? Yeah, yeah take over, yeah, basically. Too yeah. much integration going yeah. on there. And no, um, no, I think that these are those uh, kind of... I think things. especially in Bradford, um, just to touch upon what you're talking about, Haroon, there's always been a thing about, you know, in Bradford, you've got the Baradari politics, and that's how everybody votes. And, you know, you'll have the elder of the family taking everybody's postal votes and signing them off, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been loads of stuff well, no, about I, this, especially in Bradford. Yeah, exactly. And the, there's this whole argument that oh, well, um, Labour, you know, the left is trying to buy um, people of colours votes and things like that. Uh, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's far more... Yeah, if you want an answer to that question, it's far more simple, you know. Mm people find the Tory party racist. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they're voting for Labour. It's not, it's not particularly difficult yeah. uh, to understand why, but yeah, as I said. So. Well, having said that, I mean, the Tory party now has a number of very prominent people of colour in <laughs> oh, prominent positions. But also, I think it shows a certain limit of certain kinds of essentialism because one of the things that those, as a lot of these people are, um, you know, um, I would argue that it's only because they're people of colour um, that is anything distinctive about them, as their positions they take are e equally um, problematic, um, they're equally xenophobic. If, if not more so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think, um, but yeah, but that will be the thing that, you know, anyone can be a Tory now. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, but, okay. I think let's um, close this conversation here. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum everybody. This is just a short message to say that this is the end of season one of Network Reorient. We should inshallah be back on the 14th of February 2020 and at some point there will be more information as to what we will be doing in season two of the podcast. Thank you for all of our listeners and supporters for staying with us throughout season one. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.